Welcome to the Self-Storage Playbook Podcast. In this show, we're going to take you behind the scenes with fellow self-storage investors from around the country and look inside their operations to talk about their victories, lessons learned, and the current strategies they're using in today's market to dominate this fast-growing field. I'm your host, Terry Royce. Let's go. In this episode, I'll be talking with 19-year-old Brett Abamante. About a year and a half ago, Brett was exhaustingly pursuing single-family rentals as a means for cash flow and wealth generation. As the laws have become increasingly more unfavorable towards landlords, he turned to self-storage in the summer of 2020. Brett walked away from two self-storage deals he had under contract, but is currently under contract on a third, an 18,000 square foot facility in Texas. Brett also has two additional deals in his pipeline. We'll be talking about what helped him shift his focus what keeps him going when deals don't go as planned. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, keep in mind, if you have a storage deal that doesn't fit your buy criteria, or you need help with a storage deal that's come across your path, I'm always happy to take a look as we are actively looking to buy more storage properties around the US. Shoot me an email at selfstorageplaybook at gmail.com to connect. And don't forget to connect with our Facebook group and help continue the conversation at www.selfstorageplaybook.com. Thanks, guys. All right, we're live here. We have Brett Abamante. That's the correct way to say your last name? Nailed it. Nailed it. Okay, I didn't want to butcher it right off the bat. Uh, No, you got it, man. I reached out to Brett, and I've seen Brett. I've been in some forums with him and some educational stuff that we've, groups that we've been a part of. And I've seen Brett more and more around, and he's a young dude, 19 years old from New York. And so he's kind of got a cool, like, story and reminds me a little bit of myself a little younger than me when i got into real estate i was i think in my early 20s but i was like man this guy is out there going after deals and kind of getting it so i wanted to reach out to him and have him on the show brett man you mind giving yourself or giving everybody a little introduction about yourself and kind of you know where you your backstory before you kind of got into self-storage at such a young age yeah definitely i guess we'll go back a couple years man i i've always had that entrepreneurial spirit didn't have any direction whatsoever. So I thought, hey, let's get rich quick. Let's make an app. So the big thing was, you know, back in 2012, 2013, programming iPhone apps, sell ads, and that purchases easy money. That, that's what I thought. I made a couple apps, horrible, but, you know, learning experience, didn't make any money. I actually bought things for myself to make me feel better. So that died out. But, you know, several years later, I actually taught on Udemy. I still have those courses up. And they actually provide me some passive income, uh, teaching people how to publish an app. So that's how that started. But I was always itching, you know, for something a little bit more concrete. And my brother-in-law actually put me on the Rich Dad Poor Dad probably about four years ago. Read the book, didn't understand it. Was like, all right, whatever. And I was going to go to college for being an engineer. That changed in my senior year. Where I was like, man, I just I can't do it. I I just can't. I just can't do it. I'm more of a finance guy. I'm going to do that. Finished high school and was like, I, I just can't justify paying 40 grand to go to a school where I'm going to make maybe 50, but really I'm going to realize about 35,000 a year. That just doesn't make sense to me. So there's a program called 2 plus 2, went to community college. Finished the first year 4.0, and that was last year, from last year to this year. And I was like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I was going to be, I think I was going for accounting. I was like, it's good to know, man, but. Once you get past the basics, it just gets to the point where there's no point if you're not going to become a CPA. That's how I felt about it. It's important to know. And during this time, it was back probably in February, right before COVID, I tried getting into wholesaling. You know, I, I watch YouTube videos, Max Maxwell. I was like, man, I'm going to get rich. This is great. And you know how that goes. That's one thing I've learned. You know, there's no such thing as get rich quick. It's just a scam to sell educational content, I think. But anyways... I started doing it and man, I was, I dropped several thousand dollars I had saved up on anything from direct mail to no direction. And then back in February, I met an investor. I went to a free group and a local investor here in Rochester, New York, uh, Brett Iwanowitz. We met and that's actually where my journey, I would say, officially started. So about back in February, because he took me almost under his wing and has guided me and been a mentor to me. Since then, and I still, he's my main mentor. He, he's fantastic. He's helped me become more patient and negotiation has been the biggest thing. So that relationship started up because 
I'm a big data guy, data and process guy. And he, that's one thing he lacks. But we saw, hey, look, we can provide value. This is what we'll do. So I actually went up to him and was like, hey, do you want my probate list? So in our market, it's tough to get that. So provide that value up front. And I didn't know it then, but kind of goes along with the theme of the go-giver, that book. Give help if you want to receive help. You want to get money, you know, give money. So I get it. And little did I know how impactful that was going to be. So fast forward, I was doing cold calling for him, hated it. So I do all these things. And in June, snapped. I was like, I can't cold call. So it, it was great because that was a learning experience for me and partnerships. And we worked through it and it's great. So at that time, I was the goal was the wholesale and buy single families. Now, with everything in COVID, tenant laws, it just didn't seem realistic to get to my financial goals through single family houses. So that's when Brett mentioned Mike Wagner and the storage rebellion. I was like, all right, I'll check it out. Did the seven day free trial. That was in July of this year. And it's taken off ever since. I ate up the content, joined the groups, been on the forums. That's how you know we met. And then I partnered up with another investor back in October and we're taking down deals. Yeah, that's awesome. And before we kind of get into like the present and forward a little bit, I think it's kind of, as you mentioned, the Go-Giver book, which I don't want to lie and say I've read the whole thing, but I've, I think I've read about three quarters of it. But you kind of went in, I think, a little bit on faith and kind of partnered with some guys. You mentioned Brett in your local market, who I know, and you kind of dabbled some things and kind of figured out what you liked and didn't like without taking a whole lot of risk and kind of jumping in head first. And how has that kind of affected you? Because you mentioned it, you're like, oh, I tried the cold calling, didn't like it. I spent some mail on or some market money on direct mail and other things for wholesaling and didn't like it. So you kind of like, you know, I feel like a lot of people go all in right off the bat and kind of fizzle out. But you, I feel like we're able to dabble with some things and figure out real quick what you liked and didn't like. I was lucky because I almost burned out. And I'm not going to lie to you. The timing was impeccable because I had spent money through uh, December and January and not, you know, it was to the point where I was ignorant to learn. I was like, I'll just figure it out on my own. I think a lot of people think that like, I'll just figure it out on my own because a lot of people, I think overcompensate to hear that you have to fail. But when people hear that they go out and do it, that's what I did. But I was so off course. I spent so much money that I probably would have given up or just been depleted. So I couldn't do anything. But that's when I met Brett and I read the Go-Giver book and I, and that's how it kind of started. But since then I dabbled, I was like, what am I good at? Cause I know what I like, but I don't know what I'm proficient at. I don't know what my zone of excellence is. So try cold calling, wasn't it? And yeah, I, I've been lucky to not take on too much risk, provide value to investors, but then also learn where I can insert myself and help other investors. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's kind of the second point I wanted to go kind of bring up off what you mentioned, because I feel like a lot of people out there in the investing community, and I think it's whether you want to call it a scarcity mindset or a fear that people are going to steal deals or resources, but you kind of did go into from that go-giver and were like, hey, how can I help and partner strategically kind of putting yourself out there, bringing value really to other investors. And it seems like that's kind of pulled you forward. Whereas I feel like a lot of people are scared to do that, at least from my experience and my view, I see a lot of guys who are hesitant to kind of give value to somebody else without kind of almost respect, expecting a whole lot in return, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's tough when you don't have any money because in my position, no money, no experience. Why the hell would anyone want to even split a deal potentially with me? Like that just doesn't make sense. So then you have to go into it like, well, that's not the point. No, you can't put a dollar amount on time. What do I have? Time. And I think a lot of people downplay that. And in the scarcity mindset, it's a good point because everyone thinks like, oh, there's only so many deals out there. There's plenty of them. And if you want to have that deal flow, you want to be doing a lot of deals. I honestly think it's, you have to learn from someone, but also provide them value because, you know, when I provided Brett that value, that opened doors to Mike Wagner, that opened doors to all these other great people. And I have an amazing relationship with him that I can lean on to answer questions. So I would say it's more valuable than any amount of money you can make in a deal is that partnership and friendship. 
Yeah, that's like, I mean, that's great advice, man. And just kind of a great nugget for anybody who's looking to get started. Even a lot of existing people, I see that same mindset persist with, you know, seasoned investors in the marketplace. So going through that experience with Brett and, and dabbling with what you liked and didn't like and kind of figuring that out, I want to say, you know, looking back now, it probably seems quick, but in the moment, it might seem slow, but it seems like we really within the last year, you went through all that which in the reality of things is kind of quick from an investor standpoint. How did that, you know, you mentioned the landlord tenant laws that you were like, man, I don't want to deal with this with single family. You know, what attracted you to self-storage besides the landlord tenant laws and how do you, you know, view it as being more beneficial because I've owned a lot of single family rentals and they are great. And you know, self-storage obviously has its pros that we're all a fan of, but kind of go in a little bit of that of your transition from really going dabbling with the single family to really kind of transitioning and pivoting to the self-storage niche. Definitely. So, you know, the one thing that, you know, I realized in New York was the first thing that I noticed was the closing timeframe. In a lot of other markets, it might take seven to 14 days. In New York, a minimum is 30. But that's if everything goes perfectly. So that was the first thing I didn't like. I really don't have control of the deal. Not the fact that, not to say that I'm a control freak, but a lot of the times when we get a deal under contract and so many things can go wrong that we just can't control, that affects us. And also the second thing is in New York, even before COVID, the market's influenced by laws that are really against landlords to the point where people can be in a home for five months and can't pay rent. So if your margin is only $200 a month, what happens if someone doesn't pay for five months and then you have to you know, do repairs? And also the time to scale. So financing 15, 20, 30, 40 single family houses is a, is a real problem that I saw and was like, man, if I want to get to my, you know, let's say $15,000 a month of income and passive income, that's not going to be very, it's not scalable to the point where I'd like to be. Yeah. Just kind of you throwing that number out and, you know, being a 19 year old dude who's out here hungry. I mean, anybody who's looking to get into it that's kind of transitioning out of high school or college i hope they pick that up that's like those are big numbers for a lot of people breaking into the market i mean you know 15 grand a month what's that 160 ish grand a year plus or minus 170 my quick math calculator kid (laughs) me too i mean those are big numbers and i mean the single family world like you mentioned a lot of people operate off you know a hundred bucks a door, a couple hundred bucks a door. And before you know it, you have a pretty big beast of a machine to feed. And also what happens is, and I, if you look at trends, I think if you, you know, you have to take action, but also look at trends in history because history will repeat itself. Look at 08 and what happened to large scale investors. And it's actually ironic. It comes full circle. When I talked to one of the deals I had on their contract, a lot of people will do the burr strategy and that's great. That's great to scale. And you know, that can be good. But at 80, if you're leveraged at 80%, as long as you don't have to liquidate those assets, I mean, you're not going to realize the loss. But again, when you're still leveraged at that percentage, your debt payments and debt services are still high. And it's almost like the dominoes can fall. And that might be a scarcity mindset, but also I feel a little bit more comfortable that way, thinking that way. No, I think, I mean, you bring up a great point about that, you know, kind of with the Burr model me transitioning out of single family over the last year, I see a lot. I, I did a lot of wholesaling over the last 12 years, over 700 deals. And that's how a lot of guys did. They would strip all the equity, but you know, which is great when you don't have any other plan except to hold, but that's a tough thing to only stick to one plan, which is your best case scenario. And you've been out here, you've gone after a couple deals, you know, seeing kind of what you didn't like about the single family and gone after and had under contract a handful of properties that you've let go through for, through your due diligence process. Let's get into that a little bit about, uh, I guess, first, how are you finding these deals? What do you, you know, the same thing, what do you think works? What doesn't work? What maybe works that you're like, hey, this works, but I don't really like, like you mentioned cold calling earlier. So I'm just curious what you've dabbled with. Because you seem like a guy who's like, I'll try this, I'll try that. Yeah. I'm like this, let's pivot left and kind of figure out quickly. I'm curious to hear what what your experience with the deal finding process has been. It's been refreshing, I think, from the single family scene. It's so saturated with people, you know, trying to wholesale, things like that. Storage is a little bit different, but the first thing I tried was direct mail. I like direct mail. I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit biased towards direct mail, self-storage. I feel like it gets a better response rate, especially in the self-storage scene than, you know, the homeowner scene, especially if you get 
the most important thing is the data. If you can get great data, no matter what kind of asset class you're going after, that's going to help. You know, I was lucky on my first mailing, I got like a 4% response rate, which is the problem is when you don't have much capital, like almost zero direct mail is tough, you know, to be consistent, you have to be consistent with it. And I wanted to do it monthly. And, you know, at that, you know, when you're trying to scale up, you know, to hit, because it's all about your KPIs, I wasn't going to be able to do enough volume to make it worth it for me. So that's when I actually pivoted to cold calling. And I've been doing that ever since. And I actually really love that with self-storage. It's not as intimidating as cold calling uh, single family owners and asking if they want to sell their house. I've been doing that. And then other deals, I love on market. I know that might sound crazy, but man, if you can set up some processes and some filters and then some criteria to really maximize your time, you can find deals. We actually have a deal under contract in Texas that we found on market. It was sitting for 30 days. We acted quick and uh, got under contract. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit, but circling back, you had mentioned with the mailing and that you really like the mailing, but it's cash intensive and it's all about being consistency and about the consistency of sending it out, I'm guessing, in the KPI. Yeah. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that about as far as what you've seen as what kind of consistency you need and just kind of what KPIs, you you know, what kind of, you, you mentioned a 4% response rate, maybe some other out of your responses, how many are actually leads, how many are tire kickers, I'd be curious for the people watching and listening, what kind of numbers you've seen. Yeah. So uh, I'll be honest, uh, for direct mail, I'll go direct mail and then cold calling for direct mail. Um, I had about an average between two to 4% over three different mailings. And that was over a course of eight weeks. So I, I was pretty consistent with it. Or that was over a course of yeah eight weeks. I will say I got a better response rate with direct mail when I used um, a service called PropStream and I got the owner's mailing address their actual home address, because most likely if they're holding it under their name, their mailing address will be at their home residence. So I got a better response uh, through that. As far as how many leads you're getting, I was getting about 40%. It was about 40 to 35% of the people who responded were leads. I will say though, everyone who calls, just treat them as if they were a lead, because the best thing you can do is ask them if they know anyone else looking to sell. That's actually how I got one of the leads um, I got under contract. I'm actually following up with backed out because of family reasons, but that will be a deal down the line. Every single person that calls, it has valuable information and they might have a lead. So that's what the metrics I were looking at. So about 40% on the direct mail side, as far as cold calling right, right now, what I do is I have a VA and we're just, we have a master list and we're calling it. We're getting about an 8% contact rate. But we also are dropping messages. We're using Mojo. And then we have a 12% appointment ratio. So of those contacts, we're getting about 12% of those as appointments, uh, which is pretty solid. And then of those appointments, we write about about 5% of them are offers initially. So first contact after that first call appointment, we're writing an offer. And then of those 20% of those offers sent out, get accepted. So that's what we're seeing. But that's okay. still early data. So would, do you mind diving in a little bit? Because you mentioned the cold calling for the single family that you didn't like it, but the wholesaling you did. So what, what did you find different about that? Depending on the owner you're talking about, because if you ask someone to sell their home, if they might have any interest, it's very personal. Now, storage to the mom and pop owners can be very personal, especially if their home residence is on the property. But there's just a larger percentage of the people you're calling. It's not as personal. It's a business. They're a little bit more open to talking. Some will cut you off cold calling you're going to get that you get a little bit better response from people uh, especially in the self-storage world yeah you mentioned you're 30 to 5 to 40 percent of the calls you're getting your leads and then you said 35 to 40 percent of that was for the mailing eight percent you're hitting about eight percent for the cold call and 12 percent appointments that's pretty good numbers it was pretty good so the what we do is you know when you call a lot of people are adverse to cold calling because um you know there's a lot of numbers to dial through so it's great to have a VA talk to a seller, but you want to be able to talk to them. So what we do is we try to get some basic information so we can do some basic, inf just basic information gathering, address, number of units, square footage. Uh, if they have an asking price, they might have it, they might not. And then we hop on the phone with them. Sometimes they're tire kickers. Sometimes we have a 30 to an hour, 30 minute to an hour conversation with them and we get a lot of valuable information. 
And the most important thing we do is we always try to see if they have any other leads, anyone else looking to sell. Yeah. It's, and you had mentioned, so you're having a VA call do an initial data collection and then you're kind of circling in with, with, so I see that a lot in the, in the single family world having come from that, but being from the, you know, kind of more, you know, a lot of these self-storage owners, even if they're mom and pops, their businesses. So how are you kind of uh, feedback are you getting about how they're handling, you know, maybe a VA dealing with them or is any tips on for somebody that wants to do that, maybe training their VA to call uh, storage owners? Yeah. So the biggest thing I, I would say, uh, I guess it's twofold. One, uh, you want to be very active with your VA. I know some people, they give them a script and that's it. And it's like, that's not going to set someone up for success. They have to buy into why you're calling them. That's a big thing. A lot of people don't want to be calling owners. They'd rather call brokers. You have to explain and get them on board of why we call sellers. Like, why do we do this? Because yeah, they're listed on the market, but why do we want to reach out to them directly? And then two, running through call situations. That's the best thing I would suggest to anyone. Hop on the phone with your VA for an hour and literally give them hell. Just give them hell. Just give them everything you have. Every single excuse you can think of, write them down, give it to them, and then teach them and coach them through that rejection of how to deal with it and turn that potentially into a lead. And, you know, you know, tell them, like, if they're being disrespectful, X, Y, and Z, you don't have to take it. It's not a big deal. But, yeah, that's what I would do. And then have weekly calls with them. I have a weekly call with my VA. We collaborate together. And I also think think of them as a team member. They're not a VA. Uh, he, he's a member of our team, and he's great. And we go over KPIs with them. So I actually, at the end of the week, we'll download all the data so we can put it into our dashboard, reflect on it make sure we're hitting our metrics, but then also I'll go through calls and pick up uh, and download them and we'll go through it together. Okay. And the VA is, are they us based or are they overseas based? They're from the Philippines. So his name's Anton. He's great. Yeah. It was just from Upwork. Nice. Yeah. We've hired a, a back again in our single family business. We had a team of about five or six VAs. And I know that's really like an underutilized resource, at least from my point of view in kind of the self-storage niche whether it be data collection or cold calling or whatever it may be. So it's really, it's interesting to hear you kind of go get, it reminds me of back when of my wholesaling days, Yeah, all the VA stuff. That's, that's awesome. So these, these leads, you've come across a handful that you've gone after and canceled for one reason or another from due diligence through your due diligence process. Do you mind getting a little bit into what your deal profile looks like for these that you've looked at in case somebody that's watching as a deal that maybe fits that, that might fit for you, they can reach out to you or whatever, like what kind of deal you're looking for, why these worked, and then maybe why you canceled them through the through your due diligence period. The first one, uh, I was from direct mail. I didn't have a deal set criteria. I didn't know what returns I wanted. So I think that's really important. It's kind of goes along with a vision and a why. Why do you want self-storage? What do you want it to look like uh, when you own it five years from now? I didn't have that. I was just hungry for a deal, as a lot of people are. and. It's not a mailer. Someone called this first one. It was near Ithaca, New York. It's three thousand square feet. Not well run. It was still like eighty percent full somehow. It grass field. It had about those five acres, uh, and then we negotiated to split off about two, um, so we could expand on. It. Now, one thing I learned a lot through this process was I thought, hey, look, if you get a deal under contract, you'll find the money because the numbers worked. Numbers. They were okay. I think that's the better way to put it. They weren't they weren't home run numbers. But also I didn't have enough experience underwriting, so I wasn't practicing enough underwriting to really understand if this was a good deal or not. And I give some context. It was existing three thousand square feet, about two, two and a half acres, grass fields in the back, even terrain, and we had negotiated it for hundred twenty thousand dollars, seller financed, um, ten grand down and five percent interest, amortized over twenty five-year term. So it wasn't, well, that's actually, that's actually another thing to touch on. I didn't know how seller financing worked. So I was trying to get them to like, Hey, look, well, the term of 20 years. And like, someone's like, dude, what the, what are you smoking? And I was like, no, man, this is how it's supposed to go. Little did I know that uh, that's a great learning experience that, you know, you get the amortization schedule, but the term's different, you get a balloon payment. So that was a hard lesson. And that goes along with the second deal. I didn't learn my lesson on the first one. I learned that in the second one. Yeah. And you kind of, you're, you're joking about that, about, you know, when really it's whatever the seller will accept, but some of the best deals I've seen anybody create over the years are where are newer guys that went into situation and just 
went in like a bulldog because the less they know, you know what I mean? Like the longer you're yeah. in that business, you kind of, the more, you know, you're like, well, this is how it's supposed to work. It shouldn't. So just something to take away for you or other people is I've seen a lot of amazing deals, whether it just be like a stupid low price or amazing terms over the years, because somebody's like, I don't know. I just came up with it and pitched it. And, <laughs> you know, maybe that's not the best strategy all the time. I have seen some crazy deals put together over the years. And most of the time it's by new guys who just, they want to swing the bat. You know, it doesn't need to be the perfect pitch, but they go after it. So that's yeah. funny you bring that up. It, I had no, I didn't know how to work. So it was, it seemed decent. I actually talked to Mike Wagner. We have on the call about it and I gave him some ba- very basic info. And he said, it, it sounds like it works. I said, we're getting this under contract that by the end of the week, we're going to, we're going to break ground. And that's also something that I learned. I was trying to do construction, this huge project. And my first one I was like, we're going for it. I don't care. Hey listeners, whether you're looking to get on the fast track to buying your first self-storage facility, expanding your storage empire, or connecting with top-level storage investors and operators, then join me and loads of other self-storage investors on a monthly interactive training by visiting www.storagerebeltrial.com. Here, you'll find an interactive group that hosts live monthly trainings in addition to an active daily forum that connects storage investors from around the globe and is hosted by our good friends of the Storage Rebellion. Mike Wagner and his team have generously offered our listeners a risk-free one-month trial, and you can check it out by visiting storagerebeltrial.com. Here, you'll have access to all the previous recordings and forums to check out all the solid content that has already been discussed, as well as the new content coming up. I'm on these calls every month, and there are lots of other new and experienced storage investors as well. So come join us risk-free at storagerebeltrial.com. See you there. Yes. Yeah, so talk, I was kind of, and that was kind of my follow-up question. So obviously it was a small facility, but it had yeah. land for expansion. So you were just going gung ho oh, yeah. trying to make it happen on this deal. I was going to like, like, Oh gosh, I, I had, I had a holster on my side. I was about to just go after everything because I, it was a stretch. So I, on this deal, I wanted to make it work. It just didn't work. I, I wasn't playing devil advocate, devil's advocate enough to realize, you know, what happened. And also I didn't know, why it would die. And that goes along with some SBA financing. And really the financing for the project was probably one of the toughest things um, to pull out. But anyways, uh, it was 3000 square feet. And the plan was, okay, let's build 7,000 square feet of storage. We'll grade the land. We'll put down asphalt millings. We'll roll them, fence, gate, lighting, make it more of a CB class property. This is going to be great. Problem with that was I had no idea of how construction works. I am not a handyman, even though, I might, I'm wearing a flannel hat. I love being outdoors. I can't, I'm a horrible handyman. So I was like, yeah, we'll just, I, I took a Google map and I drew up like a preliminary plan of what I was, my vision. I was like, I don't know why anyone would want to be a part of this. This is great. So yeah, we were going to grade it, put fence, gate up, security cameras, lighting, the whole nine. But anywho, the project, we, we were estimating about 240,000. The problem is, you know, I was at using Mike Wagner's like guesstimate of how much it would cost. But uh, banks don't really like a guesstimate, so we started getting estimates. And, anyways, how the deal unfold, how the deal fell through was, first of all, the SBA five hundred four. If you want a construction loan, you need the cash up front, and they'll reimburse you. The problem is, you need, you have to have two closings. Didn't know that. That's a, that's knock. Now the partner I was going to actually going to partner with Brett, my mentor, and we didn't have the capital to put up front, so we're like, we got this. We know a private money guy. We'll get the money. Right, how that worked, but that didn't work out because I was also concerned. They said we'll do the appraisal, we'll do an appraisal at the beginning, and when you want to get your money back to reimburse you, we'll do appraisal at the end. I was like, "How are you going to do an appraisal when this thing is empty? Like, how, how are you going to value it? Because we needed a certain number to you know to reach our mark, and it was just too tight with too many variables. And also, the problem was the closing timeline. We were going to have to wait till three or four months." that start construction and then as a random numbers more a bank went lend on it because of covid i mean you have to have certain metrics and it just didn't you know didn't fall through thankfully so what what did you obviously other than the financing piece and maybe some of the construction piece kind of what was your biggest or couple of biggest takeaways from that first deal kind of really just going after it for lack of a better word kind of blindly for what you didn't know yeah kind of pushed you forward 
I have to think the experience of, of at least trying to put that deal together was, you know, supremely valuable rather than just passing on it all together. The financing was probably the biggest piece, but also the due diligence was the most important because what I realized was I did a quick Google search against supply and demand, uh, but I didn't really realize how valuable it was. So I, I was reading more. I was like, okay, let me go through it because I, I didn't have a set process of what I needed to do during my due diligence to make sure this deal worked. Uh, you know, to play devil's advocate, man, I, when I redid it, I found several competitors that I didn't realize before. So that was one. So that, that threw out the supply and demand, not a big deal, but then also just the process of getting a contractor down there. Um, it was in an area where Syracuse contractors wouldn't really come. Binghamton might, but logistically it's like what the steps of the due diligence I needed. Also, I didn't have any of the docs. I was going blindly. It was all based off assumptions. I didn't get tax returns. I didn't get any documents, rent rolls, nothing. So going, learning from that deal, going into the second deal that you put to, tried to put together, how did, what, what changed through that deal? And, and if we can get into how you found the second deal that you ultimately ended up not going through with as well, but to walk us through the transition from that deal to then your, your second contract. Yep. So what I did was I started documenting what I messed up. Or not what I messed up, but what, what, what can I improve? That's always the, me- the most important thing. It's a learning experience. What can I improve on? And the biggest thing was I didn't get any docs up front. So bank's not going to lend unless they have a tax return. That's just how it is. And you need some other documents to make sure, you know, rent rolls, surveys, things of that nature, because you can get on the internet, but you need that bank statements. So that was, the, that, that was probably the biggest step forward I made was getting those documents up front. And we got them up, up front. And that was a spanking deal. I'll be honest with you. And, and I didn't realize it. So I got lucky. This I found it cold calling. I was cold calling numbers on Google. Nothing really special, but I used that trick. This is where I started using the trick of, hey, do you know anyone else looking to sell? Because typically these owners, if they own more than one, they're constantly reaching out to local owners asking to buy. So I was directed to another seller. He was like, hey, look, I tried buying it three years ago. I didn't really want it call him gave me his number that's how i found it and i negotiated about 16 dollars a square foot it was 100 percent full new buildings with a waiting list i didn't even realize how good of a deal i had and then the office space he rented out to the new york state department of transportation so it needed a fence gate and some pest control that's all it needed i got too greedy i negotiated seller financing terms again not knowing how it worked trying to get a 10 15 year term his accountant shut that down he was like what about repossession x y and z because i didn't realize i wasn't listening to him and helping him he wanted to like i think a 48 month term i was like well the payments are too crazy then well i didn't realize like that's the term with the balloon at the end it's amortized over x y and z now you know 16 dollars a square foot for these brand new tractor buildings that's way below replacement cost with about you could probably put on our 10, 20,000 square feet of storage. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was a 10,000 square foot facility, 72 units. So yeah, that was the biggest difference was getting those docs. But again, I, when I was negotiating, I didn't realize how seller, seller financing worked and shot, shot myself in the foot. So you're saying the accountant shut that deal down based on the term of the deal or based on the, that he realized he was selling it too cheap or... It was the term. And I was like, well, we can fix this. And, and then my, I would say my second biggest mistake was not getting the family members involved. You know, you hear mom and pop, but I'm like, all right, well, you know, they, they own the business. And it's like, how, how big of an influence will their kids have? Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. I, and now I try to get every single person who might even be remotely involved into the sale. I want to talk to them at least because, um, He's an insurance, he owns an insurance company, the seller, and um, his son, it didn't involve him. You know, he wasn't really sure if his son was going to be able to run it. So that's why he was thinking about selling. I didn't involve him. Son was upset, said, heck no. It wasn't even the price that bothered him. It was not even the price. It was the fact that I, I guess I might have seemed like I cut him out, trying to do a deal quick, whatever it might have been. I couldn't remedy it because I think his son really pushed to want to run it. So he set some stuff aside 
So that's how it ultimately fell through. The family members got involved and they wanted to keep running for a little bit longer. Wow. So is that something that maybe you put on the back burner that you could come back to in a couple of years? Actually, I'm trying, I'm following up with him every three months. Uh, just texting him, seeing how he's doing. He's a Yankees fan. I, that's how we headed off. But um, it was funny when I thought the deal was just completely dead. Thankfully, I said, hey, look, sounds like you're not exactly sure what the future holds. Do you mind if I you know, keep reaching out to you, stay in touch? So that's the plan for that one. I think at some point we, we can go through with that. Now I know a little bit better. And I just, I mean, I should have just got it for cash. Just the cash deal. That cheap. Oh, living yeah. on right. Yeah. I've, I, I've in the 12, 12 years I've been in the business. I've, uh, it, it's tough to stomach some of those deals, but it's funny. Sometimes looking back in a year or two, it's good. It's weird. You might get another deal that, you know, works out that you're like, man, I'm really glad I didn't have both these on my plate. Um, and I still to this day have trouble internalizing some of that. <laughs> of the deals that fall. I, I just recently missed one on in uh, Arkansas that was really good. Mm-hmm. I tried to over negotiate with the seller, and um, long story short, I didn't get it. But yeah, once I once I start getting too cute, that's when bad things happen. When you start getting like, oh, I'm going to get the slam dunk deal, and it just doesn't like no. So that deal didn't work out, and now transitioning to now, you're under contract on a third deal that you found which I think is really interesting if you don't mind getting into a little bit of how you found this deal because it was on market, correct? Correct. I couldn't believe it. I, I think it was, I was like, there's no way, man. This, there, there's no way. So it was in, it's in Texas. It's in Western Texas. And it was, it was 18,000 square feet listed at 16 for 550,000. So pretty reasonable. And the market is uh, averaging about 80 cents a square foot. REITs are getting about 95 cents a square foot. So I, I used the 80 cents for you know, B-class properties. Anyways, I kind of was on a Saturday watching football, was watching Syracuse get destroyed, but that's besides the point. Uh, yeah, I was just, I came across it and said, you never know. Put some filters on, some basic filters, and I came across it and I was like, man, this is intriguing. Brand new roofs, just did all the doors, new rollers, painted the doors. I was like, huh, I'll reach out to the broker, reached out to him. And I have a set of five questions I ask. They're pretty basic. Like, why is the owner selling any financing options, any packages, any OMS you might have. But then the next thing I ask is, have you gotten any offers and why or why not have they been accepted? Why or why haven't they been accepted? That was interesting. He said, yeah, a couple of people offered a little bit too low. Just let people talk, man. He said, anything with a five in front, will get it done. I'm like, sweet. So on this one, this is interesting. I learned this new technique. When, you're under, when you are under contract with a PSA, your money is going to go hard at a certain point. But uh, there's an interesting way to potentially elongate that without your money going hard. So what we do, a lot of people don't like LOIs. Now, the reason I fall in love with LOIs is uh, we've added a clause, a non-shop clause. So once they, we have a signed LOI, we have basically exclusive rights to get it under contract until we cancel it. That's been helpful. But also, we also request all of our docs during the LOI. So in an addendum, we have all of our docs listed that we need for due diligence. We have it, and we have a non-shop. So we're not going to get shopped out. We're not going to get in a bidding war. We have it under contract. And at five fifty, it was, it's like, I think, 32 bucks a square foot. Pretty solid. We just actually got the docs um, a couple days ago. But now... We can get all those docs, rerun our, our projections so they're rock solid. It's 20% fold. That's the only downside. And when we go to get a contract, we have a better picture of exactly the numbers we need. And we can make our closing quicker, which is a lot more attractive to the seller. So so with this deal, the, you, it, what was being mismanaged with it? You said it was in a good market where the rate seemed pretty good, 80 cents a square foot, but that it was only 20% full is... What, what was being run poorly um, that you'd realize that you could fix? No revenue management system, no website, and the owner actually doesn't rent to tenants. The only reason it's 20% full is because there's people that he actually, he runs a contracting business. Um, the parcel is going to be split, but they just, he kind of gets some cash on the side and that's that. He doesn't put any effort into it. He's always, he's too busy with his contracting business. 
So revenue management system thing to put, be put in place, um, security, things like that. So the supply demand's favorable, and uh, we're actually going through our due, due diligence right now. So okay, so you're in the middle of due diligence now. What what do you have left? You know, what do you you've, has there been any red flags or surprises what, through what you've already gone through? Yeah. So yesterday uh, we have a, we have a couple steps, but one of the things we do um, is talk talk to the Economic Development Corporation. A lot of people like talking to the Chamber of Commerce. I, what will typically happen, I've found, they'll redirect you to the EDC of the MSA because they just know a little bit more. And uh, we have a list of questions. One of those is like about the area itself. You know, how's it been the past five years? One thing we like to ask was how did it um, react to 08? Jobs, any, any projects coming to town? What we like to see is if like a Home Depot is coming to the area. Home Depot can spend a lot more money on market research than we can. So we'll just pick you back off off them. Also, things we'll do is we'll take the five mile radius. We'll find vacant lots and see who owns it. We want to see corporations, buildings, things like that, or LLCs own it. We don't want to see like an individual because a self-storage facility can go buy it and then build. Then we also talk to planning and zoning to get to figure out how can we expand as quickly as possible if they know any projects how many permits are being pulled for single family houses in the area as well as self storage for instance in the market uh, about 150 permits are being pulled uh, monthly uh, near the facility for single family okay single family houses so, so this sounds like a growing area and you had mentioned that their the REITs are in that market getting about 95 cents a square foot are there any concerns with competing with the REITs for whether it be market share or customers or what's your strategy or your plan to, to deal with that element? Definitely. So, you know, there's three types of tenants. They, you know, there's a the price conscious, the, the convenient, and then there's a the quality. Now, we know we can't provide the same level of quality as a REIT. This is how it is. Now, the closest REIT is about six miles. So it's not, we're in the northern part of the city almost. It's not in this city. It's, the city limits, it's right outside it. Anyways, we are trying to emulate who has the highest occupancy and what they're doing right and how we can emulate that in our facility. Obviously, we're not going to go crazy and building a, a showroom on this small of a facility, but what can we implement? And then how can we implement a marketing strategy to obtain the quality conscious uh, customers in, the, in about a two-mile market uh, from our facility? So that's how we're playing. Now, our biggest concern is while it's growing to the north, we're in the north. When's a self storage facility and be like, okay, I'm going to buy land and just build it? Because um, it's in West Texas. And uh, the only other concern is the industry, it's oil and gas. And we know that Joe Biden was just announced president. He's talked about all these things. That's why it's important to talk to the EDC and to get how, what their plan is to combat potential attacks on their industry. Yeah. So did, did, when you talked to the EDC, did they have any, uh, I'm not sure if this was a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago, but any concerns with the existing oil and gas businesses in that market? Yeah. This is what I love about due diligence. You get to learn so much about other industries. So I talked to them yesterday. It was very recent. Basically their metric is $50 per barrel of crude oil is kind of their benchmark. Anything below it, it's not profitable to drill. Anything above it, like 60 is like their sweet spot and above. Now I said, well, look, it's $0.47, cents, $47 a barrel right now, things like that. So they understand that oil and gas can be you know, fluctuates, but what they've been trying to do is bring in um, petroleum byproduct manufacturers, so plastic, things like that, to kind of still be focused on oil and gas, take you know, advantage of the resources they have there, but then also kind of diversify almost their, their market. So employers who produce plastic, distribution centers, things like that. And then obviously they're trying to give tax benefits and stuff like that for creating manufacturing jobs. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, in the little the due diligence I have gone through, it's been interesting to talk to the planning boards and see what's going on. I'm in a very small market where my facility is, and it's actually a declining market, which was a big red flag that we kind of worked through and overcame and it seemed to work out so far. But it's interesting looking at, at like every market has... There's so many similarities and like so many nuances as well. Just with like you mentioned, is a home is a big company coming in, is so and so coming in, and that's you know crucial stuff 
to get on the ground. I'm not sure if you've done a site visit yet, but that's been where I've gained the most knowledge, you know, is going and visiting some of these things and actually driving and maybe even seeing some things. Have you visited the site yet or are you planning to go out there? We're planning to go once we have a clear picture on all that. We, so basically how we go through is an LOI. The best part about an LOI, and I, I love it so much, all of my desktop due diligence, I don't have to feel rushed. Obviously, I'm going to do it in a prompt week, week and a half. But I'm not on the clock to get my money to go hard because that's ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. That yeah, I mean you can get it back, but you just never know when opportunities might arise, and that money's going hard, and it's going to take a while to access it. So we do our desktop due diligence. It's, it's things like actually what we did was we pulled um, track these feasibility studies. So we do that ourselves. We so do the competitors. We get supply demand metrics, and then we also do kind of like population growth, medium median home value growth over the past 20 years, things like that, employment. Once we do that, we rerun our numbers, and we'll do on-site probably after Christmas, I would say. But the bit, So for us, when we go on-site, obviously we're going to look around the market, but also go to competitors, and we'll rent out storage. That's what we're going to do, and just see their processes. So we actually picked up that nugget from AJ Osborne, see what they're doing, these high-occupancy sites, what they're doing right, to keep their customers because the lifetime value of a customer is super important because a price conscious is going to cost the most headaches and money. So, um, yeah, that's what, that's the plan. Yeah. That's a great little tip. I've, when I, again, my facility I have that I'm the sole owner of is in a very small market. So even getting a hold of the facility owners to try to rent was a good majority of this was next to impossible, but going through that process would be, would be interesting. And I've heard of other people, doing that in markets and just kind of seeing like, is it easy? Is it hard? Like on a scale of one to 10. So I'd be curious after you go to doing that, like what kind of, you seem like a guy that sets up a lot of processes and procedures. Like you you seem like you go in kind of head first and then we're like, okay, what did I learn now? Let me yeah. like process and proceduralize this. So I'd be curious after you do that site visit and have another conversation, whether it be offline or on the show about, you know, what, what to do and maybe you know, almost a checklist for better sorts. Be interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm in the process of building that out now, the more I learn. Um, and it's crazy because it's, it's depends on your classification of a market. I, I think it's more of a second to third tier, about 160,000 people. So it's, a, it's big in most yeah. senses. But the one nice thing is um, it's in a market where since oil and gas, I, I can't imagine a REIT, like public storage or, extra space being like, I want to devote tons of resources to this market. Like continue because over the next, you know, 20, 30 years, we don't know where oil and gas is going to be. It's all speculative. Um, it's not going to die out quick as much as any politician might want it to. But for, so for the play for this kind of ties into the, the whole market itself. Um, we don't like kind of the potential volatility in the market. So it's still undervalued right now. Um, the plans to buy it. And then exit in about three to four years at about 1.2 to 1.3 million at an eight cap. Okay. And with this facility, you said you were buying it in the fives. Is your plan when you're talking about exiting at 1.2 plus, is your plan to expand it or just to work on what's there? It's work on what's there. So that assumption's at an 87% occupancy with a 3% market rate increase. And that's also using um, taking competitors' pricing and knocking off 10% because I need to know that it's a, it's a competitive pricing. And I also, and there are two other metrics we do one for demand test. And this is a really cool tidbit. I would, um, let's say I'm in Western New York and some and the facilities in Texas, ah, man, I don't know if I want to fly there. I'm going to fly there once and that's it. And then obviously I'll go back when we do operation overhaul, hire someone on Craigslist, do to have them take facilities or uh, videos around the facility. And if it has a gate, obviously it might be tough, but if it doesn't have them go through, take videos, photos, that's also a tidbit. If you're wholesaling it and you don't want to travel out to a facility, just hire someone off Craigslist uh, gigs, do it for 20, 30, 40 bucks. Yeah, that's a great tip. I've, I've actually used that on some facilities we're looking at. And in some of these smaller markets, I've been shocked at the number of responses I've gotten. Yep. And then like the other bucks to go take a facility photos. Hey, you'd be, you'd be amazed, man. Someone's like, I live right down in Flacco, go make 30, 40 bucks. And then the other thing we'll do is pay, uh, 
Uh, I actually learned this from another mentor of mine, Kirk Bush. We're actually partners in the storage. This is what, what we'll do is post a fake Craigslist ad for storage. And maybe when we're there doing our on-site, post some bandit signs. We'll get like a burner like number, and we'll take the calls and kind of see how much um, interest there might be. Now, we do that, and that might not be the, the channel you get a quality quality conscious tenant. That's not the point. We just want to see if there's even any demand um, for that storage. Cause yeah, it might be 20%. There's no management, but we still need, we, this isn't just in our line of defense. And also it's really good if you're wholesaling to prove that there's demand, but what we'll do maybe is if you have time, take the call, take down their information. And then when you take over the facility, call them back. So then you have a customer list of maybe five, six people and you can just get an injection of tenants. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I, I haven't heard the word bandit sign since exiting my single family business, but yeah, I, I'd like to see some pictures of you out in Texas throwing some bandit signs up. Yeah, I'm, I, uh, I'll, I'll throw on a flannel so I fit in. I'll get my boots on. I'll blend in. No one will know anything. Yeah, so you've got this facility in Texas, which sounds like it, it could really work out. What other, for anybody listening who might have a deal or know of a deal, wholesaling a deal, what kind of deals are you looking for for people to bring? You know, if anybody listening has something to reach out to you, what what, what fits your deal profile? Definitely. So uh, value added, and I know you hear that a lot, but um, I'll be honest with you. Um, anything above 20,000 square feet, and even if it's 100% full, we actually kind of like the higher occupancy deals. If it's high occupancy, even if it has a website, we still would love to look at it. And then we're looking at anything uh, below replacement cost. Um, so our financing is ideal, but you know, our, our value add, uh, strategy is a little bit of Mike Wagner's, but we also synergize a little bit of AJ Osborne. So he takes it as instead of maybe buying a facility for dirt cheap, because that's going to eventually run out once institutional money has come to storage. How do you change the, the tenant base? That's how you add value is you can instantly increase your revenue. So even if it's hundred percent full, we'd love to take a look at it. Um, so anything above 20,000 square feet, um, solar financing and below replacement cost. Yeah. I'd like to hear, uh, I know we're kind of getting to the end here, but I'd like to, if you don't mind, elaborate a little bit on that. I'm a fan of, uh, AJ's show and I've looked, listened to a lot of his stuff on YouTube, but that's an interesting kind of point. You mentioned, you know, a lot of people want these empty or poorly run facilities, but even ones that might not be poorly run where you change your tenant profile is a great way to add value. Would you mind digging into that a little bit about, you know, what you're looking, you know, with the 20,000 square foot facility that might be full, but you go in and add value through changing your tenant profile. Definitely. What I would do is find the, your top competitor. So you obviously get your supply demand, find the best competitor. That's not a REIT because a REIT's obviously going to have the resources, find like a mom or pop or medium sized operator in the market and when you're doing your due diligence, take down every single note you can. How do they take in the process? X, Y, and Z. How easy is it to rent? Um, what's the access? What's the, the drive lane with? What's the everything along those lines? And then um, this goes along with building too, but take all those notes. And when you take your facility, you need, and this is, kind of helps for CapEx and projections, you're going to see exactly what you need to do to be a similar product. But then go one step further. How can I improve it? Because um, one thing I've picked up from AJ, it's a retail business. It's not really, you get the benefits of real estate, but you're selling a product. And um, how can you deliver a better quality product? Whether that's selling insurance um, and things like that, um, selling supplies. If it's big enough, you know, 50,000 plus, build a nice showroom or just upgrade it, right? And it's um, offer wine storage. I don't know. I'm going, I'm, I can go off on a tangent here, but how can you, because you're selling a product and can you verify that product's in demand and then just fill it? It's, that's kind of it. And uh, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. You know, a lot of people think of it as a real estate business, but it is. And I've heard um, somebody else, I'm drawing a, a blank. I think it was uh, John Farling who said it, you know, it's really like a business. It's not like a rental. You think of it as a rental property, but you can kind of get in and tinker with it. And thinking of it as a retail business is another great way to just kind of, you know, shift your mindset a little bit about how you're looking at it. Well, Brett, I've got a bunch of comments here, but I've, I've thrown some up on the screen while we were going through just a lot of people saying, hey, great info. Um, somebody asked how they can get in touch with you. Um, would you mind throwing out the best way if somebody's got a deal 
that you know maybe would go your way what what's a good way to reach out to brett Definitely. It's uh, going to be through Facebook. Uh, I messed up, I think, my Facebook link to you. It'll be through Facebook, Instagram, and I'll also shoot my email. Um, just my last name, first initial at Gmail would be a good way. Um, and I, I can give that to you, Terry. So that's the best way to reach out. I'm going to be starting to document just a journey on my Instagram. It's not really the only thing. It's just kind of almost like a personal vault. And also to share the journey and help someone else maybe starting with no money college isn't for them and the goal over the next um 10 to 15 years is to build a portfolio of 100 million dollars in storage that's the goal become a medium-sized operator that's awesome man that's like i said in the beginning that's inspiring just you know like reminds me a lot when i was younger young dude just getting after it you mind if i throw your uh your you want me to throw your email up on the screen for everybody yeah go for it it's the abamante b storage yeah that works okay so yeah, if anybody's got a deal, reach out to Brett. You know, great dude, obviously a lot of knowledge. And Brett, just kind of as we wrap up here, you know, I got a quick question for you. Just what's something, you know, you've gone through a couple of deals real quick, bulldogged into some of them, which I kind of love to hear about. Yeah. You know, you kind of beat yourself up a little bit, I feel like. But what's something that you've learned or something you would have done differently, kind of going through everything, you know, looking back that just some advice you can throw out for people listening to the show. Going back, I, w- I wouldn't change anything. The only thing I would change is my um, my first steps after a deal falls through is to kind of like write it down. And I feel like to improve, uh, I, I've read this so much, so it's not my own quote, but uh, to improve, you need to reflect. So I'll write, so I wasn't reflecting enough, even though I learned it. Like the second deal, that probably might've been a deal if I reflected on what happened in the first one and devoted time to learning um, and to improve. Um, so reflection is huge. So once it, uh, it dies, um, just write down what went well, what didn't, and also mark down next to what didn't go well. Was that in your control? And, um, I've, I've started doing that and it's helped. That's one thing I would change. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of want to rush, you know, they want to rush to what we'll, let's call it the end as a, or whatever that goal may be. And a lot of us don't sit back and kind of reflect on the lessons learned and this is me kind of speaking it out into existence, speaking it back to myself a little bit because, you know, we're all inherently like that. We want to get the deal done. We want to get the deal performing. We want to move on to the next deal without taking a whole lot of time to figure out what, not only what we did wrong, but what we did right. Kind of mm-hmm. mending that together and really coming up with our game plan. So that goes back to processes. Cause if you can figure out what you did, right. That you can replicate that if it's in your control. Um, you go in the market, Tesla comes in. I mean, that's awesome. But how many times is Elon Musk going to move to your market? I don't, I don't know. But, um, but hey, we did this right. We, we did this to increase, um, to reach those um, quality conscious tenants. This is what we did. And then it can become not an autopilot at all, but you can then get an idea of what you need to do on your next one so it's not as big of a stress. And the banks, a lot of people talk about experience. You just slap down your process in front of them and they'll, you know, the officer will take it throw it in front of the board the board's gonna love it and then yeah yeah that's great info man and i'm really excited to hear about your deal uh, the one in texas as you kind of go through it you know um we'll have to we'll have to circle back in another month or two or a couple months and talk about it and not only that but i'll be excited to learn more about what other processes and stuff um and just with your due it's been really interesting i've taken a a ton of notes for the show notes uh, (laughs) i'm looking forward to throwing up just different things that you've done that I don't hear a lot of other self-storage investors doing. And, you know, maybe the the bigger buyers that might have a hundred thousand, couple hundred thousand square feet have these processes down, but that's really the difference in differentiating us versus the mom and pop owners versus professional owners. And you kind of went into that a little bit with the, you know, looking at it as a retail business, looking at it more professionally. So I think yeah. there's a lot of good nuggets, man, that you threw out and I appreciate it. So. I appreciate you having me, man. It's, it's been awesome. I think this is the first time we've actually talked, so it's awesome getting to know you. I see you always on the forums. I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. I'm just out there. I'm just like everybody else, man, trying to learn, and I appreciate it. Any last parting words, advice uh, for the listeners before we sign off? I really appreciate the opportunity you know, to speak here. I would just be, um, just give. Just give. I, I don't know how, if that's going to resonate, but the more you give, uh, kind of goes back to the go-giver, but um, 
you know, the, the wealthiest people will donate a lot of money and things like that. And I think it, um, and whether it's good karma, whatever it is, you have to provide help and not expect anything in return. One that feels good. And two, you just never know when that's going to lead you down a successful path. So that's great advice, man. Well, Brett, again, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on here. And again, if anybody listening has a deal for Brett, reach out to him, Abamonte B storage at gmail.com. And I'll have his, uh, the correct Facebook profile <laughs> link in the show notes. If anybody wants to check him out and thank you all. Appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Hey everyone. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the self storage playbook podcast. We'd love to know your biggest takeaways from the show today and would love to hear from you at selfstorageplaybook at gmail.com. You can also find out more info on today's guest, the nuts and bolts of self-storage, and connect with other self-storage investors in our growing community at selfstorageplaybook.com and through searching our group on Facebook at Self Storage Playbook. And don't forget to go to www.storagerebeltrial.com for your risk-free one-month trial to the Storage Rebellion University monthly calls. I'll see you there.